You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 84, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Aims of Anthroposophy and the Purpose of the Gertianum, translated by Matthew Barton. This is Lecture 3, entitled Human Soul Life and the Development of Imagination, Inspiration, and Intuition, given in Dornach on the 15th of April, 1923. Yesterday I tried to examine some aspects of the nature of the human being and human life from the perspective we can gain if we consider the whole compass of human life. Besides the life we lead, while we are awake during the day, about a third of our life is spent in sleep. And if we consider only the ordinary human mind, then as we look back on our life, we have a memory really only of our days, the experiences we had while awake. We tend to overlook or discount the periods during which we were asleep. Of course, it must be said that waking life is paramount in relation to outward life and culture, but we can also ask whether the thoughts that unfold in the mind in daily waking life are the only ones that have importance for human interiority too. Even superficial observation can teach us that this is not so. The reflections I will present today and in the next few days will in fact show that while the occurrences experienced by the human soul during sleep remain hidden, these occurrences are far more important for our inner human nature than the events that occurred during the day. Today, to continue what we described yesterday, let us initially return to a comparison between sleep life and waking life. Sleep occurs partly in fully dreamless sleep. Anything that occurs during this dreamless sleep is entirely unconscious for us, even if it has an effect on our earthly life. Out of this unconsciousness, this complete darkness of the mind, dreams then emerge, and from dreams we either awaken to ordinary consciousness where we possess earthly reality via sensory perceptions and by connecting and combining rational thoughts, or we plunge away from this reality again into dreamless sleep. Let us once again pinpoint the difference for ordinary outward observation between dream and the sense perceptions that live in images and logical concepts. For many people, the contents of a dream often contain a more vivid reality than the one we know in waking life. Yet this is a reality of images that we do not direct by our will, but are compelled to follow in the soul. And the difference between following these dream images and following ordinary images of reality in waking life can be precisely described We will refrain here from specifically philosophical speculations. 
We could offer them here, but they take us beyond the scope of what we wish to consider. Let us simply consider generally accessible insights. Dream images are ones in which we can dwell. We dwell within these images themselves. We live with them. In waking life we naturally have color images, tone perceptions, and so on, in the same way as in dreams. But we necessarily relate these images, whether they are visual images, tones, sensations of temperature, touch, and so on, to what one might call, in quotes, harsh reality. In our daily lives, we are always confronted by the need to bring our will to bear on whatever sense images we perceive. This is not so in the case of what we might call dream reality, in quotes. The perspective from which we judge the meaning of a dream relative to our reality can be found only within waking life. As long as we dream, we regard the dream as reality. And if we were to dream our whole lives through, dream reality would be our only reality. There is no need for us to think that in that case our outward lives would be completely different from what they are now. We could easily imagine that people would still meet one another, though not now by volition, but simply pushed toward each other automatically by natural forces, or, if you like, by higher beings. We could also imagine people being forced to do their work by the compulsion of, again, higher beings or natural forces. In brief, everything we find before us in waking life could still continue, without us knowing anything about it. If we only lived in a dream world, we would have a dream reality before us. We would never think of breaking through this dream reality into a different one. But by the natural dictates of our organism, we wake up again, and then, within sense reality, gain a perspective by which we can judge the relative reality of the dream. Thus only by accomplishing this sudden transition from dreaming to waking do we gain a perspective for judging the reality of a dream by comparison with it. But now let us ask this. Is everything that we experience while awake truly a waking condition? Yesterday I showed in some detail why this is not so. Specifically I described how it is only really our thoughts that wake us up and these only in so far as they depict or reflect outward reality. Thus we are only really awake in our thoughts. In our feelings we have no other reality before us than we do in dream, as far as our condition of soul is concerned. It is just that dreams appear to us in images, whereas feelings emerge with a characteristic lack of definition from the depths of the soul. Ordinary psychologists often judge everything according to certain preconceptions. If, instead, we observe the content of feelings with an open mind, we can see how, as they shoot upward toward the life of thought, if I can put it like that, they display a swimming vagueness, a fluctuating interplay, like dream images. In our feelings, we are also dreaming while awake. But because what we might call the substance in which dream images appear 
is different from the substance of feelings, we do not see that really all feeling possesses only the reality of dream. While we think in full wakefulness, our thoughts are also continually interwoven with the undefined subjective contents of feelings. Just picture vividly how when you wake up, dream images can continue to play in to waking consciousness. Recall how in dream images everything is in flux, larger than life or perhaps smaller, and you will see that something seemingly comes toward us in pictures that otherwise approaches us from within in feeling life, once again in blurred or erratic fashion, subjectively either enlarging or diminishing things. And as far as the will is concerned, in waking life we are in the deepest sleep. We know nothing of the will except our intentions, which are thoughts, mental pictures. If I decide that I am going for a walk, I first picture this. It is my intention. But the ordinary mind shows me as little of what happens as this intention passes into my organism as it does of what occurs while I am asleep. The success of my intention can only be measured in terms of the movements I actually perform, the changes to the scene in front of me while taking a walk, which are also a matter of thoughts and mental pictures. What happens in the organism between picturing the intention and picturing the outcome is the same for the ordinary mind as everything that occurs without my knowledge during sleep. Thus we can say that in our will we are in deep, dreamless sleep, even when awake, and that we are awake in a sense when we live in thoughts. But if we look inward with penetrating honesty, we will notice that these thoughts are also only awake as far as outward nature is concerned, not in respect of their own life. As far as the intrinsic life of thoughts is concerned, we cannot remain properly alert. There is no thinking, picturing, activity, whatever, going on in most people if they cannot picture or think something outward. But this is really only because people nowadays, in our modern culture especially, are given up to the outer world. We can compare this passive surrender to an existence in a thunderous, roaring world. Imagine that someone is playing a piano here or another instrument, but that outside some kind of machinery is making a racket. You would hear the machinery far more than the piano, especially if you were some way away from it. The same is true more or less of the thinking activity that lives within you. But we must apply this comparison in the right way. The concepts nowadays, disseminated by science, which we all absorb, that are taught us as, say, external doctrines of evolution, are basically a kind of thought racket, a lot of noise. And this thought racket, to which we surrender ourselves nowadays, especially if we are scientists, hampers and hinders our subtler perception of the inner activity of thinking. In my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom, I described this pure kind of thinking, that does not think anything outward, but unfolds entirely within us. Yet I am aware that 
In describing it, I presented something whose existence many contemporaries dispute. They are like someone who hears a machine outside making a racket, which drowns out the piano, so that they do not believe there is any piano music at all. This being so, we can see something of great importance, that we are awake when we reflect and think about an outward phenomenon in the world, but that we dream at most when it comes to the inner activity in which we are engaged in thinking. Likewise, we dream in our feelings and are asleep in our will. Thus, the soul activity, what lives within us, is not really awake when we are awake to the sense world. We go on sleeping, even while awake during the day, as far as our activity of thinking is concerned, and our feeling and will. We only awaken to external nature. And this awakening is something we also cultivate through instruments, through empirical methods of research, and by this means achieve modern science, which is important and significant. Science must develop by reflecting outward phenomena and processes in our thoughts. There are differing degrees of wakefulness in our thinking, feeling, and will. And if you can observe, without preconception, how dream differs from the outer physical sensory world of perception, you will not regard the soul faculties of thinking, feeling, and will as resembling external sense impressions, but at most as resembling what they most pertain to, dream. As far as our contents of soul are concerned, we are dreaming and sleeping continually. We awaken only to nature's outward content. We do not awaken at all to our inner soul content in the ordinary mind, but there we sleep on soundly. As we saw, dream images are flimsy, have no hard outer underlying reality beyond them that is subject to the will. The same is true of our soul's content, which lives in images, pictures. And if we have the ability to compare qualities with one another, not only quantities, we will find that if we assign to dreams a pictorial character that does not initially point to any underlying reality, then we must also assign a pictorial character to our own soul content. But this gives rise to a question of much importance. When I dwell in dreams and afterward wake up again to physical reality, then by virtue of engaging with my body through my will, I feel myself to be connected with the physical reality of the world. From this perspective of a sense of reality in the physical realm, I will speak of dream as having only a relative and different mode of reality. The question is this, can I in the same way awaken to soul life as I wake up to the natural physical world? Just as I connect dream images to the structure of my waking reality by engaging my will in my body, can I, similarly, by a higher awakening, connect thinking, feeling and will to a corresponding reality? That is the question. Can I waken for soul life as I waken for the natural world? The natural context I experience during life on earth, in the form of outward physical sense reality, appears to me in dream 
in the form of images. But the whole of my soul life also only appears to me in pictorial form, as in dream. Can I waken to it fully? Yes, I can. I can wake in this way through exercises such as those I have presented in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and titled Occult Science. I first sharpen and internalize my thinking, no longer only developing a thought content through outer stimulus, but instead giving myself from within a clear, not a vague, suggestive thought content. I dwell upon this thought content, concentrating on it as a content actively given from within me, within my soul, In this way I gradually come to real awareness of thinking. You see, we are not conscious of thinking at all if we only allow our thoughts to be stimulated in us from without. Only if we stimulate thought from within, time and time again through meditation, concentration upon a thought content, do we become aware of and within our thinking activity. Then it becomes apparent to us that we live really in this thinking and that we do not know this when we seek only outer stimulus for it. In this way, thinking comes to life, whereas otherwise it remains abstract and dead. Thinking becomes something that no longer consists only of thought shadows, as it were, that come from outside us, but rather something that stirs inwardly in us like our soul's very blood. We are filled with what seems a second higher human existence. Thoughts become living powers, formative forces, as I also called them in my book titled Theosophy. And we become aware that we bear thinking within us really as a second body, the etheric body, the body of formative forces. You see, it becomes apparent that what otherwise only exists in shadowy form in thoughts are in fact forces that cause our growth. We withdraw into the growth of our human organism and come to see that the processes that would otherwise only occur chemically according to the properties of the substances we ingest are assimilated by this same inner spirit corporeality, etheric corporeality, that forms our thoughts and we discover that we become a unified, inward human being by virtue of these inwardly living, inwardly stirring thoughts. In this way we come to recognize the existence of a second human being within us. But we discover something else as well. This second human being we come to know is not like some kind of static cloud that vaguely fills the spatial physical body. This second human being is actually in continual motion and it is not possible to fix it and hold it fast at any particular moment. I can put it like this. At any particular point or moment in life we could draw, and there's a drawing, our experience of the human physical body, which is identical with our thinking, except that in ordinary thinking we possess only thought shadows, not the living thoughts themselves. The second body that pervades us as a theoric body or body of formative forces can only be held fast for a brief moment. The moment before 
it was entirely different, and in the next moment it will be different once more, and so on, both back into the past and forward into the future. But this means that for inner beholding experience, this body of formative forces, apparent to the ordinary mind only in the form of shadowy, abstract thoughts, is found to be nothing spatial at all. It is, rather, something that unfolds through time. This leads us back in a living tableau to a certain moment of our earliest childhood. I will draw this schematically here. Let us say that we are, by now, an older person at a particular moment. Yet this body of formative forces is not restricted to one period, but leads us back to childhood. We do not survey our life through ordinary recall, but like a tableau in which everything is simultaneously present. What I am drawing here as spatial configuration is in fact temporal. This leads us back to our childhood, to the point in our childhood which we can normally remember back to, our earliest memory. There, too, we find our etheric body, this body of formative forces. But if, through carefully practiced exercises, we acquire the ability to look back to this point, then we arrive at the time when we learned to think as a small child. Then it seems as if our thinking, our ordinary thinking, initially, comes up against a barrier. The ordinary mind, ordinary memory, meets a barrier here. Through imagination, however, we reach further back beyond this. We gaze upon the soul content of the child who we were before we were able to think, while as a young child we still dreamt into the world. You see, thinking only emerged in us at a particular moment, after we had begun to speak. Now by this means we gaze into a period of our earthly life and see the nature of the soul before we possessed shadowy, abstract thoughts. Back then we still had a living thinking, and this living thinking worked very strongly to configure and sculpt the human brain, the whole human organism. Later on, when much of this thinking is absorbed into abstraction, into what is dead, only residues of it remain for working upon the human physical organization. While we are a dreaming child and cannot yet think, thinking itself is active in us. In later life, the hubbub of the world prevents us gazing upon such thinking, and so we cannot look back either to the thinking that was still active in early childhood. But now through these practices we can look back, and then this thinking appears to us as the sum of forces that actually formed and configured us growth forces, forces of nutrition, and so on. We now see that the human organism is built up out of the etheric nature of the world, for this is where these forces originate. Increasingly, we become able to approach the etheric body. We see that this etheric body is most active, working into us from without in our earliest years, before we have learned to think and while we still experience life as a dream. In this way, we have worked our way through to imaginative perception. 
something of this early thinking can remain in us. Given the hubbub of our modern scientific culture, we do not notice it if we do not undertake exercises such as I have given in the books I referred to. But if we do, we find that something of this thinking we once possessed in infancy, before we can remember, remains to us. This thinking that builds up our organism, and to which we therefore owe our outer physical organism, this active living thinking, is what I spoke of in my books as imaginative thinking. Something of this imaginative thinking remains to us, and with practice we can also inquire into it in our later life, and in this way come upon the etheric body. I spoke of this yesterday, but not everyone was present, so I'd like to mention it again. Imagine the human eye, E-Y-E, and then the optic nerve that passes from it inward and spreads out in the eye. If you trace the body of formative forces, and there's a picture, purple-red, that largely follows outer physical neural activity to the point where you arrive at processes, red, where the outer world is reflected through the eye, then you have a perception of the outer world. And what is then established or fixed in the body of formative forces by the optic nerve, I am giving only an approximate account here, it would take too long to describe this whole process accurately, can always in turn be stimulated to activity again. Thus, with the activity of the body of formative forces, the neural system, we come to the point where the nerves end yellow. It is not that we intrude into the neural processes that reflect the outer world. We only give an impetus to what lives in them as the body of formative forces, pushing this body of formative forces through to where the nerve stumps taper off. And then we have a memory impression. The memory image largely consists of reaching only as far as the nerve ends with our inner activity. By contrast, in the case of sense impressions, we push through to and beyond the nerve endings and advance to sensory processes largely engendered by the blood. Here you see the living activity of the body of formative forces. But everything that you imprint in memory in this way has to have entered the nervous system, and thus it originates from no further back than that early period when we learn to think in infancy. What predated this is as follows, and if we have schooled our thinking through exercises I referred to and then look back, we can discern this as we look back through the second human being in us who unfolds in the temporal realm. We become aware that by the same paths by which impressions entering us from without are turned around, reversed, by memory, something enters from behind that is also an activity of the body of formative forces. Continually we have both these activities, really. But in the ordinary mind we only know about the first, about memory. But these two activities are present. What originates from outer sense impressions that are pushed back, pushed forward again to as far as the nerve ends, 
so that memory images arise. And then also something that, as it were, pours in a human creating way into the whole nervous system. From the direction in us where we do not perceive with the same sensory strength as we do in the front of the body. From behind, of course I am not speaking precisely, creative powers enter us. In the earliest infancy, before we can think, they pour in very powerfully and later do so in a weaker fashion. And this is the thinking that does not originate in the sense world, but from the whole cosmos that is taken from the cosmic ether and that we appropriate when we descend from pre-earthly existence to earthly life. We retain it as a higher gift up to the moment when we learn to think. The moment we learn to think, you can say that in the ongoing stream of our life we close the door to this living thinking activity, this development of human formative forces in the body of formative forces, in the etheric body. To learn to think in relation to the outer world of the senses means to close the door to universal, cosmos-forming powers of thought. In childhood, therefore, we closed the door on cosmos-configuring powers of thought. They remain within us, for we need these formative forces continually, in the first part of our life as growth forces while we go on growing. Then later as powers to assimilate the food we take in and so on. But we do not notice them. We only notice what the body of formative forces reflects of the impressions we receive, which then in memories push through to our nerve endings. But through exercises in concentration and meditation, we can come to perceive what now comes from the realm of the cosmic ether and enters us to develop and configure us ourselves. In our self-observation we become aware of processes that also unfold in time, that we have not absorbed through outer impressions, but which possess only the stream in one direction. If we then pursue these to the point where the nerves end, where we otherwise have memories from outer impressions, we not only gain a picture of our etheric body, but of how we are embedded as human beings in the whole cosmic ether. We perceive ourselves as a second human being. We come to discern how etheric forces enter and depart from us, and how the whole play of universal cosmic forces that lives outside us and enters us is of the same nature as the thoughts in us that are like a shadow image of the etheric body. We discern that our thoughts are the shadows of the etheric body and that the etheric body is really something living, a part of the whole cosmic ether. Here we have reached the first level of supersensible perception. We could say that what manifests in thinking is really a kind of mirror image. There's a drawing. Here the surface of the mirror. It faces forward toward the senses, red arrow. What is absorbed by the senses is reflected, comes to consciousness when it arrives at the nerve ends. But there is also an inner activity that does not work like this, but passes through the mirror, purple arrows. If we follow these, 
Then we have a body of formative forces that is part of the formative forces of the whole universe. In this way, though, we have in a sense reached the other side of thinking. What is the nature of the exercises to reach imaginative thinking? It is like this. Whereas normally we only see as far as the mirror surface within us, looking upon what is reflected outward, which is in fact nothing other than outward nature, we now acquire the ability to look behind the mirror. What we find there is not the same as outward nature. We find there human creating powers. That is the other side of thinking. Here we have dead thinking, also called abstract thinking. There we have living thinking. And in living thinking, thoughts are forces. This is the secret of thinking, that what we possess in ordinary thinking is only the shadow of true thinking. But true thinking pervades the world, exists as the world's structure of forces, not only within us as human beings. It is not very bright to think that thinking is only inside us. That is roughly like saying, after drawing water from a brook and drinking it, that my tongue produced the water I drank. We draw water from the earth's whole fount of water and do not think for a moment that our tongue produces it. We only do this in the case of thinking. We say that our brain produces thinking, whereas we merely draw from the totality of thinking spread out everywhere in the world then have it within us as a sum of thoughts. Human beings succumb to another illusion when thinking of their thinking, one that I can compare with the following. Imagine that we have here a path, roughly like the one that goes down to Arlesheim and Dornach, which is soft underfoot. Imagine that I am walking along it, and you see my footprints, see drawing red. Now, Imagine that a Martian arrives on earth, never having seen anything like these footprints before. Imagine that he knows nothing of the existence of human beings, and perhaps he's arrived too early in the morning to see anyone yet. So he looks at these footprints and thinks, Aha! Here's the earth, and here are these tracks in it. The earth there is substance. He already knows this from Mars. And in this earth substance are all kinds of forces, vibrating forces or whatever, ions or electrons. These forces, he thinks, are at work down there, and they have created these tracks, these markings on the earth. The Martian is, of course, wrong. He is unaware that I passed that way and made the prints, and the earth did not produce them from below that the earth all the way down to Arlesheim is innocent of making these prints. There are no forces down below that have shaped them. They are made from without, from above, by me. But this is the same illusion people have in relation to the brain. There are structures, shapes there, too, and they think that these structures are created from within and that this manifests in thoughts. In the brain we do indeed find the full imprint of thinking. It is a fine thing to trace how a person's thinking is reflected in the forms of the brain down to the tiniest convolutions. But just as little as footprints in the earth emerge from below, 
so the convolutions of the brain do not arise from anything other than impressions which living thinking coming from the universal ether, weaving and alive in the universal ether, engraves into it. What I'm describing here becomes vivid apprehension when we develop this imaginative thinking. And just as we can grasp thinking from, as it were, the other side, so now we can also grasp from behind, if you like, another element that arises somewhat earlier in ordinary human life, the element of speech. Let's picture for a moment what happens in speech. The air stream from your lungs passes through the larynx and the other speech organs. The shapes of the larynx, of the tongue, the hard palate, and so on, give rise to the sounds of speech that emerge from your mouth. But now instead of tracing this path of the air stream through the organs of speech and out into the world, you can trace the whole process in reverse. See next drawing red. Again, this cannot be done with the ordinary mind, but must be accomplished by means of exercises that enable us to follow earthly speech to the point where it forms outwardly. We trace the inner nature of speech to the point where it outwardly forms. This is not found in the physical body, nor in the etheric body, but in a higher aspect of the human organism than the etheric body or body of formative forces, in what I called in my books the astral body. What is spoken outwardly is speech for earthly life, but what comes toward us, as it were, from behind, reaches as far as the organs of speech, but does not resound outwardly as speech. What speaks into us and thus does not arise as earthly, audible speech, proceeding from the larynx and issuing forth outwardly, but ceases at the larynx, becomes mute there, as opposed to the earthly language that starts there and issues forth into the world, is a spiritual speech. It is something we can call spiritual speech, which is spoken to us from the world of spirit. What informs and imprints us in this way is inspiration, meant now in an entirely rational way. We have to bring about this inspiration by withdrawing our consciousness, again through exercises I have described in my books, from our full engagement in outward words. What approaches the larynx and organs of speech in this way from the wider world and speaks to us, whereas we normally think of speech as us speaking out into the world through our speech organs, will have been especially pronounced in childhood, this element of inspiration, up to the point where we learned to speak. As we learned to speak outwardly, these forces ceased being active in the same way, but they exist in us still and we can find them if we raise ourselves to the gift, the boon of inspiration. Then we become aware of a third element within us, a third human being, who does not belong to space nor time, but nevertheless acts within us in a strongly configuring way. This is the astral body, whose processes are inspirations, where we experience what actually underlies our life of feeling, 
Our feeling life is a dreaming of what flows into us as inspiration. And this feeling life is intimately related to the process of breathing and speaking. This is why in more ancient times, when people sought to reach the world of spirit in a different way, they used specific exercises to work upon the inner process of breathing. And the old yoga exercises were calculated to turn attention to what lies behind speech. By replacing natural breathing with a specially cultivated form of breathing, they became aware of this, as we inevitably become aware of something else if we modify what is habitual. Imagine for a moment that you perceive the water in a river as you swim in it, differently depending on whether you swim at the same speed as the flowing water or slower or faster than the river current. If you swim at the same speed as the water is flowing, you do not perceive the counter-pressure that you will notice if you swim more slowly than the current. By configuring breathing differently from natural breathing, the Indian yogi perceives the spiritual element present in the stream of breath, the spiritual element that endows us with our astral body, and by means of which, in turn, we reach up into a higher world than the world of the etheric. We regard these exercises that I described in Title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds as right and fitting ones for humanity advances and progresses. You see, we can point everywhere to tangible processes that underlie things which the world at large finds so fantastical about anthroposophy, that we do not consist only of a physical body, but also of an etheric and astral body and I. Next time we will speak more of this. But these things are not just shaken out of a sleeve. They arose through careful and detailed inquiries, taking scientific method and developing it further to embrace the full scope of human nature. The difference, though, is that such inquiry depends on continually heightening and enhancing human capacities of perception. What, therefore, is the nature of imagination, whereby we penetrate the etheric world and etheric life itself? It involves tracing further than the senses' processes that have first pushed backward through the senses and can then, in turn, be pushed forward again as far as the nerve endings. It involves us becoming aware, as we otherwise only are of memories, of what originates in the universe, the cosmos, and is of the same nature as sense perceptions, but now belongs to the supersensible world. If we come to perceive world-creating powers in the same way as we perceive memories, then we have the being of imagination. We experience the etheric being of the world. If we learn to perceive behind speech, what now does not proceed outward from the larynx, but speaks into us, rather, from the other side, from the universe, the cosmos, and falls silent when it reaches the larynx, then through inspiration we become aware of a further world to which we belong with our third human organism, the astral body. At the same time, however, something else becomes apparent. 
Here in the physical sense world, we have on the one hand physical processes and on the other moral impulses that rise up from within us. They stand alongside each other in such a way that even theologians nowadays urge us to apprehend the sense world in only sensory terms and to see the world of morality through a quite different mode of cognition. But the moment we advance as far as inspiration, where we not only dwell in the world in which one speaks outwards, forwards from the larynx, but in a world that speaks through our entire being and falls silent on reaching the larynx because we close the door there when we learn outward speech, replacing the language of the heavens with outward language, then at the moment we live our way into this other world that ceases at the larynx, we experience the inspiration content of the world, the mysteries of the world. And then we no longer experience only a nature that moral impulses cannot penetrate. Behind natural existence we then experience a world where natural impulses, natural laws and moral laws are interwoven, are one. We have lifted the veil and have found a world in which morality and physical reality resound in accord. And we will see that this is also the world in which we lived in our pre-earthly existence before we descended to earth and into which we enter again after we have crossed the threshold of death. The End of Lecture 3